Welcome to Westside Online. My name is Shirlene Steimers, and today we're going to continue in our study entitled Beyond Your Current Mind. As I began to prepare the study for this week, I began to wonder a little bit about the author, who he was. The life of Jesus is written in the Gospels and the New Testament by four different individuals. One is Matthew. Matthew was a despised tax collector who met Jesus and became a follower of Christ. He eventually became one of the 12 disciples. He wrote his account of Jesus' life from a very historical Jewish traditional perspective. He even started his good news book by starting at the beginning, well, before Christ was even born, with the genealogies of Christ. That was because he needed to give the Jewish readers that history of the Messiahship that was prophesied in Isaiah. Then we have Luke. Luke was not a Jewish person, but he was probably a physician. He noted a lot of miracles, particularly the physical healings that Jesus did. In fact, he writes about more physical healings than any of the other three writers. Then we have John. John was a Jewish writer, and he was also one of the 12 disciples. He wrote his book from a very theological perspective, really focusing on who Jesus was as God, as the Son of God. And then we have Mark. Mark writes from a non-Jewish perspective to probably a Roman audience. His focus is on Christ's activities and his sacrifice, including his human emotions. He picks up on statements and people's reactions. Mark, as he is known, can be read about in the book of Acts. He was a very good friend of Peter's, and he was a cousin to Barnabas. He accompanied Paul on many of his missionary journeys beyond Judea. All of these writers have similar stories in their accounts, but they're all very complementary to one another. During this season of COVID-19, I've been spending a lot of my spare time doing jigsaw puzzles, 1,000-piece jigsaw puzzles. And at times, I find myself sitting with a pile of pieces that I've sorted by color, who sh these pieces should all fit together, and it's just not happening. Well, sometimes I want to pack the whole thing back into the box. But usually I take a break, I get a glass of water, come back with fresh eyes, and begin again. Sometimes I'm taking part a whole section in order to fit it again properly. And it's usually just that one piece that connects everything together that makes a difference. Well, our study is a little bit like that today. We're going to see some puzzling pieces in the story. We're going to look at Mark chapter 11, verses 11 to 26. And as we look at our Bibles, we sometimes see how the translators have divided up the events in sequences and put little titles on them. But you know, Mark wouldn't have written it like that in the original. So we're going to look at the whole passage today as he would have written it, as one or two days in Jesus' history. The events that we'll look at today immediately follow Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. 
we often celebrate that event as Palm Sunday. It's a turning point in the life of Christ that quickly escalates to his arrest and his crucifixion. He's entered the holy city as the prophesied king. As, the, as people have acknowledged him, they've shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Following that event, we come to this passage. Listen or follow along as I read our passage from the New International Translation, starting at verse 11 in Mark 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Multitudes of people have witnessed some incredible miracles that Jesus performed, healing children and adults from demon possession, healing people who had been blind, deaf, or disabled. And then there is a pivot in direction as Jesus enters Jerusalem, humbly on a donkey, as the prophets wrote about the Messiah, declaring his kingship into the kingdom of God. It's all good. It's all positive. It's wonderful. The people were so excited. And our study picks up today when he goes from those streets into the temple where he looked around at everything. And then he meets up with the 12 disciples in the village of Bethany. He looked around at everything. What did he see? Keep this in mind as one of those important puzzle pieces as we look at the next sequence in the story. They've stayed the night in Bethany, sort of a suburb of Jerusalem, and were coming back to the temple the next day. 
And along the way, Jesus is hungry. And from a distance, he sees a fig tree and leaf. It looks great. Upon reaching the tree, no figs, no fruit. And Jesus ends its potential to produce fruit. That's the pile of puzzle pieces that's so confusing. Jesus knew it was not the time for figs to be ripe. And how do you put that together with all the great miracles he's been performing? Why, he changed water into wine. He took two loaves and, and um, two fish and five loaves and produced an enormous picnic for 5,000 people. He brought dead people back to life. Surely, if he's hungry, he can pop a few figs off this tree. But he curses the tree. Let's set this pile of puzzle pieces aside and go on to the next event, because as we'll see, it just takes one piece to connect the puzzle. Jesus arrives at the temple where the same old activities are going on as the day before. People would come to the temple to worship by bringing sacrifices, to confess their sins, to experience forgiveness for sins, and to pray. Remember how he looked around at everything? Jerusalem is an outstanding place, geographically speaking. People journeyed three times a year to worship. They came through rough terrain, dangerous travel routes where robbers laid in wait, and then they walked uphill to the city carrying all their provisions for their journey, only to enter a place of political retaliation, of bitter history, heartless rituals, meaningless rhetoric. That is what Jesus saw in the temple that day. And as he looked around at everything, people were not worshiping in spirit and in truth. Jesus stops those who were exchanging funds at ridiculous exchange rates. He stopped those selling animals for sacrifice at inflated prices and from carrying merchandise through the temple courts, which was an action of irreverence to God. And he teaches his friends, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus had an interesting conversation with a Samaritan woman, and it was about worship. See, the Samaritans were part Jew, and they had quite a controversial relationship with the Jewish people. They had several conflicts. One of them was about where one was to worship. They worshipped on another mountain called Mount Gerizim, while the Jews worshipped in their holy city, Jerusalem, which is always referred to geographically as up. In fact, it's 2,500 feet above sea level on Mount Moriah. He told her, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. True worship isn't about what mountain you're on. I wonder what the reaction of the money changer was when their coins ended up all over the floor, or what the livestock sellers did when, they threw, when he threw them out, or what the chief priests thought. Oh, yes, we do know what they thought. When they heard this, 
they began looking for a way to kill him. My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. It's interesting that this word for prayer in the original language is not a wish or supplication. It's not intercession for others. It's not a song of praise. It's the word pouring out. My house shall be a house of pouring out. When I looked this up, I found it rather emotional. Can you imagine Jesus standing in the place of worship for the Jews, looking around at everything, seeing the hustle and bustle of merchandise being carrying, uh, carried around, people buying and selling 10-cent doves for $4, animals being brought through the courts, changing their currencies all along with Pharisees looking down on everyone with their political agendas, and his heart is breaking. My house will be a house of pouring out for everybody. What he sees is stuff and heartless offerings and political agendas. Here he is, God all-powerful. He has been showing them who he is, and they have failed to see him. They love their laws and power. Then I came across this passage in Zechariah 8, starting at verse 3, where we read this amazing verse. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. Yes, that's what Jesus is looking around at everything to see. Verse 6 says this, It may seem marvelous to the remnant of this people at that time, but will it seem marvelous to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Wow. No, it did not seem marvelous to Jesus. Luke writes in his account of these events that when Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now... It is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Ah, like the fig tree, looking like you have it all right, but you are empty looking all green and leafy, like there's something marvelous being produced there, but it's fruitless and a sad disappointment. Further in Zechariah 8, we read that the activities of fasting will become joyful and glad occasions and happy festivals in Judah. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. In verse 20, it says, Many peoples... And the inhabitants of many cities will yet come. And the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, Let us go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going. And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, ten men from all languages and nations 
will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard God is with you. And here he is. But the temple is not joyful and glad with happy festivals. People are not entreating him, not the way they should. Like the fig tree, the temple is not producing the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of the Spirit of God. So on their way out of Jerusalem, they pass by that tree, the fig tree. And here it is, 24 hours later, all withered from top to roots. This is a miracle of destruction. Jesus is making a strong point and is using the fig tree as a parable or as an object lesson to get the point across. It's about the fruit in your life. It's about the character of who you are. He has only a few days left before he is arrested and crucified. And when the disciples point the withered tree out to Jesus, he replies profoundly, have faith in God. Now remember the geography. They have just descended from the high point of Jerusalem. Let's remember where everybody is standing now. They're looking up at the mountain. And he says, I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. This fantastic city on a mountain, this temple, it's going to be destroyed. Believe it. You see, the fig tree is like that parable, that object lesson. And the real lesson is about Jerusalem. And it's sandwiched between the fig tree events, whereby he is continually bringing us back to the key piece of the puzzle, forgiveness. Be forgiven. Forgive others. Live in the fruit of the Spirit of God. Peace, joy, love, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such thing, there is no law. Jerusalem was attacked and destroyed in 70 AD. It's about 40 years later. But more importantly, Jesus is about to be arrested and crucified. As the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus is the final sacrifice, and there will be no longer any need for the sacrifice for sin. The need for the temple as a place of sacrifice for sins was eliminated. We can also read the account in Luke where Jesus actually refers to himself, his body, as a temple, and how he's going to destroy that temple and raise it back up in three days talking about his death and his resurrection. It's all unfolded. It's documented history. Figuratively, the temple has been thrown into the sea. That figure of speech 
is about faith. Faith that God can do the impossible. You can't imagine throwing a mountain into the sea. That's impossible. But not with God. There's no purpose in just deciding to throw a mountain into the sea. God, in his goodness, answers prayers in wisdom and grace and mercy. His statement isn't so much about the mountain as it is about faith in God. The temple, according to Jesus, is a place of sincere worship. It's not a geographic mountaintop. It's not a place where leaders conspire a political maneuver. In fact, the Apostle Paul said to the believers in Corinth, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? And in this body that houses the Holy Spirit, and you spend some time in prayer, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him. In this place of worship within, be right with God, be right with others. Jesus comes back to this theme of forgiveness over and over and over again. This is the final piece in this puzzle to bring about um, truth today. What about you this morning? Is everything all right between you and God? Is everything all right between you and others? A few years ago, I was really struggling with some past hurts in my life. And I knew I'd never be rid of it if I didn't intentionally deal with it. My, my real problem was that I wasn't letting myself be forgiven. So I decided I needed to look after this issue. And so I identified the hurt, the bitterness, the self-pity, the resentment, and I walked from my house to a lakefront park. I took up some small rocks and with a permanent marker, I wrote the words on the stones. Then I took a photo of the stones, said a prayer, and I threw them as far as I could into the water. And when those feelings begin to creep back into my mind, I take a look at the photo and I remind myself, it's forgiven. Look around at everything and throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and keeps us from being right with God and being right with others. Forgive and be forgiven. Pour out your heart to Jesus. Are you like the fig tree? looking fine, but not bearing any good fruit that nourishes and satisfies your soul? Come to Jesus in faith. Throw that mountain into the sea. All that stuff that represents what messes up worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Here we are in a worldwide pandemic. We're separated from our place of worship. That's our church building. 
And from that perspective, we can look around at everything within this temple in which I worship, your temple in which you worship. What do you see? Do you see meaningful reflections on scripture? Do you see heartfelt expressions of song lifted up? Do you see prayers of faith? Are you pouring out your heart? That's what our prayers should be about. Be right with God and be right with others. The bottom line, this final puzzle piece that brings the truth into the picture, forgiveness. Come to Jesus for forgiveness and live in harmony with God. Forgive others and be in harmony with others. Forgive yourself and be at peace. This final piece of the puzzle makes everything else fit together. Reposition that final puzzle piece and pour out your heart. Heavenly Father, Lord God Almighty, thank you that we will never be separated from your great love. Amen.